Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire, and today I bring you some unfinished business because I have wanted to talk about everything everywhere all at once since it came out in theaters in the spring. And today we were lucky enough to have both of the Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Snyder, join to really go deep on some of the filmmaking aspects that hold their romp through the multiverse together. So we talked about creating a bespoke version of Premiere to edit in. We talked about the sound design choices that help guide the viewer's attention throughout the film. We talked about summer camp. It's a great conversation. Uh, so I will get out of the way and I hope that you enjoy listening to the Daniels. I'm curious how y'all modulate emotion while you're doing a lot of like maximalist gag filmmaking. Because, you know, there's there's like a difference between being overwhelmed in a film and being exhausted with visual information and everything everywhere threads that beautifully. So I'm just curious how you guys think about that. Yeah. To me, if I'm watching a film and I'm confused and I don't know what's happening, but I feel a strong hand behind it all, I give it the benefit of the doubt and I actually get excited. When I see, yeah, when I see the, the hand of the filmmaker guiding me through something unknown, it's so special because those are so rare in films these days. And that's what we wanted to do. It was very much an engineering project to figure out when was it too much? When was it just right? When did we give the audience permission to be confused? All of that stuff. But the technical, like, tricks I think of the edit was a lot of sound design honestly I like to think of the experience of sound and music through the metaphor of a roller coaster sometimes you do some pretty sharp drops and it, those are intentional it's supposed to jolt you out of your comfort zone and, and you feel the shock of it other times I, I love to use sound design as like little slides little, like little ways to gets you from one plateau to the next without you realizing it or without it feeling unnatural. And so there's a lot of transitional sound effects that will take an edit that would have been jarring, but makes it feel natural and intentional. If you go back and watch the film, there's moments when we used swells and there's moments when we really wanted to bang the audience out of their comfort zone. And yeah, 90% of the edit was just figuring out that exact thing you're talking about. And our rough cuts sometimes are, that's the toughest thing is you're like, it just doesn't feel right. And it's like, what kind of note am I going to give from a sofa? It's like, no, make a, I don't know, make it ease me in there, but make a sound that hints at the thing later, but make it feel surprising. I don't know. But it's becomes this exploration of collecting sound effects and trying to like crack the code. I do think part of our creative process sometimes is just like making a huge mess and then cleaning it up. If you look at our timeline, like, from the very first edit, we had 30 audio tracks, which is not what you're supposed to be doing. I was going <laughs> to ask how many times did Premiere crash on you? <laughs> Quite a bit, but not not as bad as past projects. Adobe collaborated with us. They let us use like a in-development version of Premiere to try oh. to experiment with productions so that we could easily share project files. And our assistant editor, Zoe, worked really closely with them and did a ton of stuff that I'm completely naive about. But I think she would have a better answer than we do about how much it crashed because she was behind the scenes fixing things. I do remember her saying that sometimes she and Paul, our editor, would reach out to Adobe and be like, we had this problem and can you fix it? And they would say, why are you doing that? <laughs> <laughs> and she'd be like, don't worry about it. Just explain to us if we can fix it. And they'd be like, no, really, that's not what the software is designed for. <laughs> but I, I do think this film would not have yeah, it would not have been possible without this kind of technology. I, I think we were really trying to push 
ourselves as editors, but also we want to approach the technology of what a, a non-linear editing system could do. And we're really grateful that Adobe was very, very gung-ho. Like Paul, our editor, is this incredible, um, smart, funny, but sensitive person. And his process is very collaborative. And him and his company, it's called Parallax, they do this thing called swarm editing, where it's all about passing projects back and forth. It's about how many people can tackle the same exact scene, and then we can all watch it down and see which version is the best. And I think this movie needed that kind of collaboration. And so sometimes Daniel would be working on a scene, I'd be working on a scene, Paul would be working on a scene, and then we'd trade or we'd show and tell. That process was only possible because we were able to try out this newer version of Adobe, which is funny because I know that's one of the reasons why so many people use Avid is because it's very much built for that kind of sharing and collaborative, like big picture stitching of a project. But for everything that's great about that, we needed to also be able to move fast like David. Premiere was good for us because they're, they're working on getting that structure in while also allowing us to just like constantly be pushing things in weird directions and trying things you probably shouldn't be doing. Like nests within nests within, within nests, like, things like that. Like yeah. ripping stuff off YouTube, stock footage, still images, mixed file types. Like Aspect ratio changes like hopping into after effects and back and forth a whole lot i was gonna ask about that feels just an incredible amount of after effects had to because you were also doing all of the vfx amongst friends and not really with a post house right yeah which is there's so much logistics that fell on zach stoltz and ashish the vfx assistant editor on our end it made the job so much easier because we had a first name basis relationship with the vfx artists and we had a workflow that wasn't like that didn't require us to lock the edit before we start the visual effects or have a negotiate the finances of, oh, we added an effect shot. It, it kept it collaborative and creative that they were friends of ours and that we could use a software we know and we could temp the visual effects ourselves. So it'd be like, this is the gist, now clean it up. Right. A lot of effects, that was what we did. It was a reaction to past experiences with the standard pipeline and how our processes did not fit in, within that pipeline. Either you had to have a lot of money like in commercials, which is great, or you need to have someone do you a favor because you can't afford it. And then something when you're the favor, you are the low priority and then the whole thing becomes, you, you have no control over something that's so important, which is the visual effects and the visual language. And so this version of the process was great because I have two monitors in my back office. I could be zooming with someone, screen sharing with someone on one monitor while working on a shot myself and comparing and contrasting and talking about, okay, what's working for you? shot what's working for me it was very much like we were in the trenches with them as we were developing the look and the style and it was really i think it was really great to be able to do something cheap without exploiting people if that makes sense i don't know if this is going to make sense or not but it feels very much like a summer camp movie oh yeah in that you have to have in an overarching structure in a sandbox but then a have the freedom and the collaboration to allow everyone to just go nuts within mm -hmm. that and so i'm curious how that extends to how you guys work as a team and on set and how that sort of extended to the entire process of making the movie. Maybe you've heard us say this before, but that's our favorite metaphor for how we make movies is summer camp vibes. Awesome. I think we, as directors, we prefer to be camp counselors, not generals, yeah. dictators, or even the corporate version of just like a boss minion hierarchy that it's, oh, this is your assignment. Go have fun. Hey, you're team yellow. You guys are going to be building props. And it's not to say that we aren't willing to fight the right fights or to stand like 
strongly and confidently on our decisions, but we leave room for both. There are moments where we say, no, this has to be this way. Otherwise, the film is going to, it's not going to work. It's not going to be what it needs to be. And then there was moments for us to open up and be like, look, guys, we don't have the time or money to pull off what this part of the script needs. So go find what we have available. We will rewrite it. We will collaborate with you and what you find. And it's very much finding a balance between those two things that makes our movies so ambitious and yet possible. Sometimes I get self-conscious about how we talk about our movie like it was just perfect. Like we had the most fun. It turned out perfect. And there were huge parts of it that were like very unpleasant for me. And I would feel bad about it sometimes because sometimes Dan would be having a blast and I'd be like, I'm not happy today. You know, like even the VFX review process, sometimes I'd be like, I can't talk about this effect shot anymore. We were talking about the summer camp thing the other day. And I was like, I think sometimes the vibes aren't summer campy enough for me. Like certain days do get really prescriptive and and everything slows down and we just have to light this thing exactly. And it's going to be methodical and we're going to be the dictator today. And I, And if I do that for too many hours, I'm like out of my comfort zone. And I'm like, oh, what happened to my chaotic? I like my summer camp chaos. And I think I'm still growing as a filmmaker and learning to appreciate that sometimes really pays off. And also to chase and make sure I'm still in that flow state of when I do my best work. And this one was the closest we've ever gotten to like how we want to make movies. But it's still yeah, hard to stay passionate and in that sweet spot. I'm curious if there were any sort of lessons that y'all took from Swiss Army Man to streamline that process, especially in terms of coming up with visual storytelling and visual gags that still thread the emotion through. So many things. But I do think for me personally, the number one thing that that made the biggest difference was just having a script that was ready to shoot. Swiss Army Man, we were very naive. We went in with this idea that we would try to attempt to do what we did with music videos, but on a larger scale. And it was a terrible idea. And so we were rewriting almost every night and just like losing sleep. And it was not very like the directing aspect of it actually suffered because we were so focused on rewriting. And what ended up happening between Swiss Army Man and everything everywhere was just this this determination to make sure that the script was ready before we shot. But then also we went off and like to take a break from writing, we would do like little we do commercials or we would do episodic one-off guest directing jobs just to get better at those skills. And it's been really lovely just to go on set and think about nothing but shot listing, nothing but blocking. You're not thinking about producing, you're not thinking about writing. And I think you look at Swiss Army Man and then you look at everything everywhere and you can tell that there's a jump in our confidence, I think, in what, what we can do just from a yeah, just from a directing standpoint. And then Shiner has a different answer, I'm pretty sure. It's different but similar. But yeah, I think yeah, one of the lessons after Swissy, which is we can shorten it Swissy, is to be nice to each other and nice to ourselves, which is goes hand in hand with rewriting all night. So hard to be nice to yourself as an artist. Yeah, yeah. And it, it doesn't do you any favors when you're making a feature film, which takes years. But if you're just talking about production, it's weeks and weeks. It's still, it's a marathon. You cannot just stay up all night, which is what we had to do on that one at times and or what we chose to do and what we did to each other. That's because um, that's what we did with music videos. That's what we yeah. learned. But a music yeah. video is like, oh, you can stay up all night and finish a music video. Yeah. That's fun and fast. Yeah. And you're like, ah, I got sick, whatever. But if you get sick in the middle of your eight week sh- film shoot, that's a huge deal. And yeah, so we, yeah, we played a, we, a lot of process things more than your question about visual metaphors, which was more 
I think just more fluid. It's just something we've been doing all along and loved and found that people respond to. What's a weird image that we can chase and how can I put heart into it? You guys do a great job of setting up like a more normy visual language for the opening of the film and then gradually teaching the audience how to watch the rest of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, that's that was very intentional. You know, in screenwriting, they always say like you have, I don't know how many pages, but let's say like the first 10 pages, you can do whatever you want as long as you're, because you're establishing the world and the audience will go along with it. And so it's those are precious time to really exploit that goodwill. And so even visually, we wanted to try to do that where the film, even though it's visually to be just like a grounded base layer, the energy and the story and the characters, are they feel like they're already in the multiverse. So that, that contrast was really interesting to us. Just the filmmaking was, was trying to be pretty, yeah, normy. That's a good way to put it. But then you could still sense underneath it all there something was going to happen. Something was going to burst. And the way we described the script to ourselves early on was it's going to be a family drama that gets interrupted by a sci-fi action movie that gets interrupted by a love story and then thrown into the blender of the internet until it explodes. And that was the goal. So it, that's why it's been working for a broader audience than a lot of our other stuff. A lot of our other stuff, we kind of just slam on the weird the weird gas and just go for it. But yeah. this one, we wanted to be very intentional about the slow build towards chaos. And then the chaos is great. And there's Jigglypuff sound effects. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm curious, like when you guys are, are setting out that spine, are you thinking about the logistical constraints? Or is it when you run up against, okay, we only have the budget to shoot in one location. This is all going to take place more or less in an IRS building. I'm curious what shapes what creative decisions, if that makes any kind of sense. No, no yeah. totally. We are thinking about all of it f- from the very beginning, but having made a bunch of stuff together now, we also feel a little more confident sometimes being like, we'll figure that out later. Not yet. But I've, as you were asking that question, it was making me think that like sometimes we there's certain challenges that I think we're excited to tackle where we're like, we're, un, we're uninterested in compromise. We're like, no, I want, I'm fine with that being hard. That's a fun, hard challenge. That's going to be so hard. We're going to keep it hard. No compromises. And, and then it's going to be worth it. Yeah. It's going to be worth it. Like the fight scenes, like the choreography being precise and funny and fun and good was so important to us. And getting that right was so important. And then there'll be challenges where I'm like, ugh, I don't want, I'm bored with this challenge. I don't want to have to tackle that challenge. Can we just write it different? I don't want to spend weeks trying to logistically figure out which company moves to do when to get which places. And so from very early on, it it was like right from the beginning, it was like IRS building. How much can we keep in one place? It's going to be like Die Hard. I love like an action movie with constraints was very exciting to us. And then other stuff we kept ambitious and hard as hell (laughs) yeah i think one thing that happens is often at least for me personally i turn off the budget brain when i'm writing and shiner shiner is like different his brain works differently than mine in that way knowing that we'll figure it out knowing that we'll we'll shift things around and as the as we move into prep oftentimes we're doing rewrites based on what we're finding because the the cost of randomly finding something and be like oh what can we use with what can we do with this is like so much cheaper than saying I need a very specific bottle that it has blue gems on it and it's when you twist the cap off it it plays music or whatever I don't know why you would want that but like so much of screenwriting you write these things because you're like I don't know I need something here but it's unimportant what exactly it is 
And so instead of searching for the specific thing, we allow the universe, we collaborate with the universe and say, oh, what are you, what's going to wash up on our shores? Oh, that's way more interesting than what I would have come up with. Let's rewrite it for that. And it, you get so much more bang for your buck in that way. And so the a lot of the rewriting in the second half is this kind of fun, creative improv game with props. You know, that, that whose line is anyways game where they just get random props and they have to use them somehow. Like a lot of our movie production was that with our costumes, with our DP. With Some our, days it was literally that there's certain scenes where in the script it'd say like she does a thousand different things to Wayman and like it's this the flashing lights before she stabs him and uh, we told the props team like don't worry it could be anything we'll yeah. figure it out on the day because they'd be like what stuff do you want and we're like yeah. I don't know and I remember literally that day my partner visited set and brought ice cream treats for a bunch of us she had like drumsticks from the freezer section of the grocery store and we were like passing them out and I was like "Ooh, let's feed one to Waymond and we literally walked over gave it to Michelle shot, yeah. and just did a shot where she's like shoving ice cream in his face and it's in the movie right. but it was like it was just like, don't, we a lot of times had to tell people like what's a priority and what's not a priority because right. they would read the script and be like, this is impossible. impossible. And yeah. we'd be like, what if I told you only these things matter? Does that make it possible? Like the trophies have to be good. The props department spent tons of time on the trophies because that mattered. You know, what Michelle shoves in his face during that flashing sequence, we, we will never yeah. complain about what yeah. props they bring. That's fascinating because it feels like all of it comes back into that fight sequence on the stairs. Is that something that like you're sort of leaving open for other folks, but then you're tracking mm. to see how you can use all the parts of the buffalo and stuff? Totally. Sometimes. Yes. I think because we live with these stories for so long, yeah, we get pretty good at tracking things where we understand the ripple effect of any of these shifts. And oftentimes we'll say like, oh, that's great. This doesn't matter. Let's let's put anything in there. Or sometimes we'll offer something to us and I'm like, oh, you know what? This isn't going to work because for C93, it's going to really mess something up. And now we know we have better instructions now. Get us something that works for this scene and C93. And so, yeah, it's always about us looking at the bigger picture and finding, yeah, finding a way to make our crew's job as easy as possible because it's, nothing about this film is, is easy. <laughs> yeah, and audiences love a callback. It's like such an easy storytelling maneuver to be like, oh, it came back. They're like, oh, that, which I feel like part of why they like that is is that's like what Dan said earlier. It's, oh, someone confident and in control is telling this story. It's like, don't worry, I got you. Like, I, I got a plan. But sometimes I get really exhausted with how many callbacks we weave into our scripts because Dan loves it. And it makes editing hard because then it's, oh, if I cut... If we cut out the setup, the callback makes no sense, but it's already in there. Ugh, why did everything have to I would, get, I mean, I, I would argue, woven in there? I'd argue for this film in particular, it's especially important that everything gets called back because the film is struggling with this idea of, okay, in all the noise and all the chaos, is there any meaning? And our brains are just meaning-seeking machines, right? We're always looking for connections, the gestalt of it all, trying to see how it all, what it all adds up to. Yeah, we're, that's what narrative is. And so for this film, we wanted to create chaos and then we wanted to organize that chaos. Like it was really important for the film to feel like all of that mess was worth it so that you can say like, oh, if, you know, the idea of if nothing matters, then everything matters. And that was a fun, that's why we kept going with Rakakuni or we kept going with the hot dog universe or kept going with the rocks as we were saying, these are no longer jokes. These are no longer callbacks. These are fully formed stories and ideas worthy of your attention and time. That was like, like thematically, it was actually really important that everything comes back and everything makes sense and everything has meaning, even the dumbest things like rocks rolling down a cliff. Absolutely. And yet you're also able to have three main lines of action and separate things geographically of, okay, 
there's the IRS building where there's a specific fight where she has to let go of Joy. And then there's the the laundry parking lot. That's another layer of it. So it feels like you guys are using setting to help navigate all of that noise. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, we we tried to break down all of the th- different parallel storylines with a very specific aesthetic so that the audience would have a little bit of their bearings. So like aspect ratios and lens grain, choices, grain, color choices. Grain structure, the LUTs. Yeah, yeah there's, there's so many, many things as yeah. you could. Well, I mean, one car white universe feels very separate and that's I'm that's very intentional so that we know exactly where we are when we're there. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, like yeah. A, a tool. Although at a certain point... We, the movie it doesn't matter anymore so it helps yeah. you get not get frustrated until you're until you've given yourself over and then by the time they're going up the staircase it's yeah yeah everything's intercut it's, yeah it's all fine <laughs> yeah don't worry about it the last thing i wanted to ask you guys about to circle back to sound there's a lot of loud noises going on but it's like really sneakily used as well in terms of helping telegraph that action and make it really clear so i'm curious what your y'all's process were in terms of thinking about how the fights were going to work and how sound was going to play a part in that and what your reference points were and what you were going for there. I love sound. I love rhythm. I love tone. I think that's like, I, I, I thought I was going to be a musician at one point in my life and I was not really good at it, but I have a lot of opinions. And so that's why it's great to work with sound designers and uh, composers who are much more talented in and that way. And you have way. good summer camp vibes, which is yeah. important in music yeah. sometimes. Right, yeah. exactly. But so, so to me, like my personal taste and what goes into the film a lot is like finding ways to combine s- sound sound design in an interesting way where you get the very literal sound like the literal footstep on sand okay that's literal you know exactly what that is and you pair it with the emotional sound underneath it what are you trying to get out of it if someone is again I'm going to use the foot grinding idea even though I don't think that's even in the movie if someone is grinding their foot in the sand what emotionally are they tra- are you trying to get out of that is it supposed to feel oppressive and angry and feel like someone like crushing you okay what like can I get some water boiling sounds can I get some pneumatic press sounds crushing something like a car crash. Can I combine a car crash with a foot grinding on the sand so you get the poetry of it with the literal thing? And so much of the film is like that. The moment when she presses or the moment she does something strange and finds a jumping pad to jump to another universe and her earpiece turns green that we I wanted it to sound like a, something futuristic but something old at the same time and so we found this great so classic flashbulb charge sound from like an old camera you throw that in it builds up anticipation it's familiar even if you don't know what it's from we went through so many sounds that were like too sci-fi and we're like it was like and we're like ah this doesn't feel right and finally it was dan that was like oh the charging disposable camera flash sound feels right it gives you the sense memory yeah another another fun one that i don't think people notice often is that at the very end of the movie when she's going up the stairs and looking at all the people and we we call it the empathy fight where she breaks them down by understanding them even little things like her looking at someone and thinking about them i wanted to add punching whooshing sounds that you would normally have in an action film but to her eyes so her eye just looking from left to right i would add like a you know like little things like that and trying to turn even the act of looking and seeing someone into a fun dopamine hitting action moment and so it's like things like that where i'm I have very heightened tastes with sound design and Shiner is a little bit more about the grounded stuff, but like we find a way to know tonally what each scene needs. But I think my, my, my feeling of sound design is it's meant to remind you of what the literal thing you're seeing on the screen is, but then evoke a sense memory that you're trying to um, 
I think you get a lot of bang for your buck by doing that because the audience gets to fill it in. They get to understand what their, yeah, the lived experience of that sound is very different than what the literal sound is going to be. I think like my job a lot of times end up being protecting the moment we loved from too many new ideas. Like sometimes it's like you're doing a painting and it's like, oh no, you, you've painted over the thing that was cool. So like sometimes it's just getting back in the sound mix and being like, wait, 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 we've this is going to play on a lot of different speakers. There's that thing in there. That's the actual thing that matters. We like turning things off. But we're lucky that we have a lot of creative people without too much ego who are fine throwing, who all collaborated with this part of it too. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about like how the composers were part-time sound designers. They're so opinionated and so smart, you know, about cool, interesting textures. Paul, our editor, loves sound design and would get so frustrated with the edit that he would slash sometimes he just can't help but just disappear into sound design land and we'll be like what have you been doing for the last three hours and he's just sound effects <laughs> and brent and andy and the team at unbridled are ego free about it so the fact that there's all these cooks in the kitchen I'm not like mad that we all have all these opinions but i love talking about sound it is one of the most like poetic painterly parts of the process because it's not just problem solving of blocking an actor. It's oh, you can put any sound anywhere and the audience kind of goes with it. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. It's it's fun to get in the weeds and demystify it because we make the kind of movies we want to watch, you know? And so kind of just want to like share our secrets. Yeah. So hurry up, kids. Make make a movie I can watch. I I want to see them. (laughs) Amazing. 